VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout to get in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. I know we're not supposed to say it, but it's so hot, especially at night. Now, when you think back to June last year or the year before, people were referring to it as January. Not so much this year. It has been mighty hot and mighty sticky, but hey, hard to complain about that for the short few months we get of a little bit of heat, but there you go. All right, so baseball season. I don't know if you watch much baseball. I really do love watching baseball, personally. And the Jays got a 6-5 victory last night over the Red Sox. But you look at the uh, the AL East uh, standings, the Yankees are running away with the best team in baseball again this year. 55 wins out of 75 games played. So how about those Blue Jays? It was today in history, 2004, that Randy Johnson, six foot ten lefty, imposing figure to say the very least on the mound, uh, became only the fourth pitcher to record 4,000 strikeouts. He finished his career with 4,875 behind, of course, Nolan Ryan at the top of the board with 57-14. The other two with 4,000-plus strikeouts, Roger Clemens, steroids. Steve Carlton also with 4,000-plus strikeouts in his career. Randy Johnson also became the oldest pitcher in the same year, 2004, to pitch a perfect game. He's one of only seven pitchers in the big league ball to have pitched a perfect game and a no-hitter in their career. So there you go. All right. There was plenty of controversy when the government announced, Premier Fury announced, there would be $600,000 in support over the course of three years to bring NASCAR races to Eastbound Park out in Avondale, of course. Over this past weekend, they had their first uh, go-around. 18-year-old from Chanscove, a, a girl pardon me, a woman named Sarah Thorne, became the youngest woman ever to drive in NASCAR Pinty's Pro Line 225, so in a NASCAR race period. So congratulations to Sarah. She rented her Dodge race car from DJ Kennington, one of the legends of the Canadian circuit in NASCAR. So congratulations, Sarah. So she spun it out a couple of times, but her goal was to finish all of the 225 laps, and she did it. So 18 years old, driving NASCAR, very cool. And if you want to talk about the money, I guess we can do that too. All right. Back to the ice for a second. So, you know, we lean on just how great it was to watch Newhook in the finals and win a cup and Dawson Mercer throughout the course of the year and Clark Bishop playing at the Ottawa uh, Senators. And, you know, Zach Dean and Ryan Green getting invited to the U18 camp this summer. So many good news stories. And, you know, Abby Newhook, and add to the list, everyone who's doing great things as a player from this province on different levels of the big stages. But then there's some dark stuff going on as well. So just last month, Hockey Canada, very quietly, settled a lawsuit. A woman said she was assaulted by members of the country's 2018 gold medal world junior team. It was at a gala and a golf function four years ago in London, Ontario. So, I mean, these are things that, you know, sometimes we don't give enough attention to the fact that there's got to be a culture of safety for athletes in all sports in all sports, amateur, and especially when we get into the, the elite levels, so many dastardly stories out there. 
So Hockey Canada representatives had to testify in front of the Standing Committee, the Heritage Committee, to discuss whether or not taxpayer funds were used to settle this particular lawsuit. Now, Hockey Canada's treasury is made up like this. Business development and partnerships uh, make up about 43% of Hockey Canada's coffers. Uh, then funding agencies, 14%. Insurance premiums, 13%. That's the insurance premiums that individual players and associations pay. Interest revenue, 10%. Taxpayer funds, 6%. The big issue here now for Hockey Canada is to try to clean up their act and ensure that everyone, athletes, and anyone inter encountering their athletes are safe and protected. Now they've got the sponsorship fallout. Scotiabank has withdrawn their funds until they see an improvement in the culture of the sport. Canadian Tire and TELUS have also withdrawn their support for the upcoming World Junior Hockey Championships. Some of the other big players in that field will be the, let's see, I've got another list here, oh, Esso, Nike, Tim Hortons. They're expressing concern, but they haven't yet withdrawn their financial support. So with all the good stuff going on, I suppose it's always important to ensure that some of these other stories get some attention as well. All right, moving back closer to home. Out in Mount Pearl, there's a rally today for the QP Local 2099 workers. They want concessions, and there's a lot of argument going on about the two-tier proposal made by the city. So there's a rally being held, and the potential for job action is real. So, of course, it'll impact the residents of Mount Pearl with the provision of some city services, but also with the pending summer programs. It may indeed see Mount Pearl parents and their children left in the lurch with some of these programs that may indeed go by the wayside with very little heads up. Okay, let's go to the skies. There was so much skepticism brought to bear when Diamond Group and Carl Diamond made a proposal back in September to purchase the Stephenville Airport, you know, reinstate passenger flights, the manufacturing of these massive drones, hundreds of millions of dollars of investments, $10 million for the fire hall. People thought there was nothing there. You know, came the deadline in December and nothing happened. And then there was some optimism displayed by the Stephenville Town Council with some $50,000 grants that went out the door in support of, and now the deal has been struck. So the board of Stephenville Airport voted last night to support this particular proposal brought forward by Mr. Diamond in conjunction with Greater NL Partnership, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. It's a federally registered company directed by Diamond. So this is good news, right? If this all comes to pass, this is going to be fantastic. Interestingly, Carl Diamond is going to join us this morning on the program. We've been trying for a little while to get him. Apparently around 9.30 we'll be speaking with Mr. Diamond. So this is big news for the region. Here are some of the promises being made or the, inside the proposal. If we're going to see as many as 5,000 additional jobs in the region, I don't know what makes up the 5,000 jobs, but excellent news. $200 million worth of potential investment. There's the possibility for the Diamond Group to build a vertiport because they've been involved with the vertiport business and bought into a UK startup very, very recently. So this could be great. So I guess the skepticism is always going to be part of the conversation, right? Because sometimes when it sounds too good to be true, maybe it's not. But it looks like it is. And so I think this is absolutely brilliant stuff for the economic and financial stability of the region. I'm sure that everyone on the West Coast who may indeed be anxious to get some of this long-term, viable, meaningful employment, you may indeed find it now at this Neville Airport. The quest to reinstate passenger flights. I mean, when Air Canada withdrew in sometime in the late 80s, it really turned the Stephenville Airport upside down. It's a wonder that between the town and the airport authority and other partners, they were able to even keep it as a viable airport. So this injection of economic activity is absolutely brilliant. 
I'm looking forward to speaking with Mr. Diamond to see if we can get a bit more in the way of detail about when the work will begin, what kind of jobs people can anticipate up front, and yes, the $10 million for the fire hall, which was a concern for Councillor Lenny Tiller out in Stephenville. So, sounds like it's good news to me. What do you think? You want to talk about it? We can do it. I'll stick with the airports for a bit. It looks like the... Uh, famous lounge at the Gander, Gander International Airport is going to reopen today. It was first opened in 1959 by Queen Elizabeth II. And you've all seen the pictures of the various celebrities and people of note who have been at Gander International Airport and the role of played, of course, 9-11, what have you. So I don't know if you've ever seen it or been in the lounge itself. People describe it as one of the finest examples of modernist design in Canada. The mural flight and its allegories, of course, by Kenneth Lockheed is considered that particular most exquisite example of modernist design in the country, but it is an especially cool and really tony uh, lounge to sit in. So that reopens today. That's good news. Sticking with Gander for a second, out in Gander Lake. This is really interesting. So a partnership between Newfound Gold and the Marine Institute, they've discovered a World War II RCAF, Royal Canadian Air Force, B-24 Liberator Bomber. It's using some multi-beam echo sounder survey equipment. You know, as the story unfolds, we'll see what more we can find out. They've been looking for it for quite a long time. It crashed back in 1943, and now they have this ghostly image that they've captured because of the multi-beam echo sounder survey gear. That's an interesting one. And Lynx Airlines, coming to town. First flight for Lynx Airlines happens today. They're going to be flying out of St. John's twice a week between town and Toronto Pearson, which is a nightmare at this moment in time. Also going to bring to bear by the 14th of July uh, routes including Edmonton and, Car and uh, Calgary. So, options are good. All right. This one, this has been a bit of a ridiculous story forever. The citizens' representative interviewed some 21 people working with Elections NL, and the report was given to the Speaker of the House, who sat on it. And, you know, the Speaker is also accountable to the House of Assembly and to us, as much as anyone else who is elected to be a member of the House. So it was been poorly handled from the onset. So where was the report? Where was the report? Where was the report? All of a sudden, the report was in hand. Then, unbeknownst to Michael Harvey, the privacy commissioner, it was going to be vetted by him. Turns out, without the consultation, he said no. So the House Management Committee is going to have to take it on. So Mr. Chalk has been, he's of course the uh, electoral officer and the commissioner of legislative standards. He's been suspended with, without, uh, pardon me, with pay. All right, so now the House isn't sitting, so time is of the essence here. I don't know how important a story it is in your mind, but we're also talking about human beings, individuals, and what the future holds for them. So time is of the essence. When the House of Assembly reopens in November, that report and the final evaluation of whatever redactions and further evaluation or investigation has to be completed. Mr. Chalk's term is up in December. But it's the other people involved in the story where I think the key in focus is. Their lives have to continue, have to move on. So there's got to be some sort of outcome here sooner than later. Just imagine if the report had to be put in the hands of the members of the House or the House Management Commission while the House was open. So as opposed to now the summer months and working on this investigation, ensuring that the report is finalized before the House of Assembly reopens in November, that work could have easily been done before November. Now we have to wait and see if it will be done in time. So let's get at it. There was simply never was a need for this report to be sat on. For the speaker's main concern to be, how did people know? 
when you have X number, if you have a couple of dozen people involved, whether it be the citizens rep, the individuals that were interviewed, people are going to talk. It is the most inconsequential issue surrounding this report is the speaker worried about how people found out about it. Who cares how they found out about it? The fact of the matter is something has to be done. So Mr. Chalk has been suspended at this moment in time. That word coming from Minister of uh, Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, yesterday, who was flanked by Mr. Brazel and Mr. Din. Both opposition leaders, or interim leaders, say that they are in support of and call it the prudent thing to do. But he has been suspended, and we'll see where we go. One second, sip of coffee. Oh, we're back. You know, the modernization of the Elections Act, which I think was as old as 1991, it had to be done given the farcical nature of the most recent provincial election. And I'm going to keep throwing this out there because so many of you are consistently talking about the fact that if the Tories are in power, they hire their Tory buddies. If the Liberals are in power, they hire their Liberal buddies. Some of that is fueled by the amount of money flowing to politicians and individual parties. If the public rallies behind this issue, as much as we do about health care, important. Dr. Shortridge, absolutely. Economic opportunities, absolutely right. Whatever it is of, of important to you, we can talk about it. But let's add this to the list. Democratic reform and campaign, campaign finance reform. Again, whether it be Kathy Bennett and her leadership bid and the money she spent on her own campaign or former Premier Ball or Chess Crosby and his $300,000 worth of donations to his own party, that's no rules are broken. They didn't do anything wrong. But it still allows for individuals outside the political arena, private sector, corporations, organized labor, to make untold amount of financial donations to whichever party. It's not good for any of us. It's just not. And unless there's some public pressure brought to bear, no one's going to change it. Because just like you talk about the federal liberals saying the last election will be the last one with first past the post, it's in their best interest to keep that in place. It's in the governing party's best interest to keep the campaign finance the way it is. It makes it easier to add up in the bank account because people can make whopping big donations. Let's get out of that. Even at the federal level, I think the limit is $1,600. So how can we possibly accept the fact that you can write a $10,000 check, $15,000, $250,000 checks? We've got to put the pressure on them. We just have to. So every time you gripe about, well, they hired their own consulting company buddies that are in line with their party, let's make that less and less part of the optics, the perception surrounding politics, because you look at it all the time. People will say, look who's down at the dinner with the premier, 500 bucks a plate, sure, they're buying favors. If you think they're buying a favor for 500 bucks a plate, what do you think people expect if they're going to write a check for ten, fifteen, fifty thousand dollars $50,000? So that doesn't get enough attention. So let's put that on the radar because I think it'll make things a lot more transparent. People will be more accountable, the old catchwords, the buzzwords associated with politics all the time. And I think it's a big deal. Read this story this morning with horror. A woman who had been working for the Canada Revenue Agency as a contract worker as far back as 2006, then offered a higher paying job in 2017, one of uh, 200,000 plus-ish federal employees who have been battered by the ridiculous Phoenix pay system, sole sourced to IBM, and of course it's cost us about $2.5 billion, there's still no replacement uh, in place at this moment of time, federal employees, underpaid, overpaid, not paid at all, getting T4s from CRA that don't even represent any employment that they actually had. This woman lost everything. You know, the federal government offering compensation $2,500. This woman has lost everything she had. Marriage. Her home. 
gone, hasn't received a cent in compensation. So these stories are going to be widespread across the country. She can't be the only one who has been decimated by a, a pay system through no fault of her own. Imagine at some point she was getting checks for zero dollars. Anyway, my heart goes out to that poor lady because that's just unbelievable. A couple of quick ones before we get to you and your calls. You know, things are tense, right? For a variety of reasons. And I think they've been even intensified over the course of the pandemic, right? They have. I feel it. You feel it. It's absolutely perfectly fine for people to be disgusted or to dislike or to even hate one party, one politician or another. It's part of it. As much as it's not great at times, it's getting away from us. You know, I don't think the country took it seriously enough when, what's his name here? Uh, I've got it. Uh, Corey Huron, right? He was the fella, we called him a disgruntled sausage maker. He drove uh, halfway across the country, armed to the teeth, getting on the grounds at Rideau Hall. He ran through the gate with his truck, right? He wasn't there to say a gracious hello or to simply debate or argue with anybody, including the prime minister or whoever they encountered. He was armed. He had four weapons. He was eventually sentenced to six years in prison, but that story just kind of came and went. Right? Well, you know, the disgruntled sausage maker. Now we're at a point where the MPs across party lines are talking about the amount of death threats that they're getting. I suppose it's been happening, but I think it's happening more and more and more. So now they're talking about equipping the members of parliament with panic buttons, mobile distress alarms. And it's not just, you know, Marco Mendocino saying he's being threatened. There are politicians across the board. I think we've got to just get back on track here. This is the least helpful. It's really quite scary, if you ask me. So supposing you, I don't care what party you support, but I don't think we should at any time think it's acceptable for Jugmeet Singh to get a death threat, or Pierre Polyev, or Jean Charest, or Justin Trudeau, or Christian Freeland, or Charlie Angus, or whoever, or Clifford Small, or Ken McDonald, whatever. The death threats are the step way too far. It gets us absolutely nowhere. I don't care who you support. I don't care who you condemn. I don't care who you criticize. I don't care who you loathe, hate, or love. But the death threat business is getting absolutely carried away. Just ask the Sergeant at Arms at the House of Commons, and he'll be speaking very forcefully on that one as well. All right, very quick one here. You know, and I'm always asked, why do we need Pride Month? What's about all these Pride celebrations? Well, I think there's an example of as to why it's important. There was a wellness walk, a healthy living event scheduled for Grand Falls, Windsor, and now it's been cancelled. Pride, Pride Grand Falls, Windsor has been told that the leadership at the Salvation Army Park Street Citadel does not approve of their Pride group being invited to the property. That's why when we talk about equality and respect, inclusivity, we're not there. There's been great strides made. But if one group or another is so put off with a Pride group that they don't even want them on their property for a wellness walk, that's why Pride is still part of the conversation. That's why it's still important. So it's a real shame that that particular event got derailed and has now been canceled. And we can talk about that from any angle you so choose. But Pride GFW also went on to thank the Grand Falls Windsor Lions Club for their kindness and allyship on the matter. But the leadership of the Salvation Army Park Street Citadel wouldn't welcome them on their property to simply go for a walk. 
We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get the tune going at the top of the charts in the UK in 1961. This beauty here, I'll wait for David to get it queued up. Yeah, sir, sorry about that. We're going to have to just wait a couple of seconds while Dave queues up the particular tune. Did you search it up yet? So we're going with Del Shannon, Runaway. There was a couple other ones that were in the queue that I was thinking about. Uh, Buddy Holly taking to the studio today to, uh, to record Peggy Sue, which is, of course, another real jam. But we went with Del Shannon all the way in the UK. You got it ready to go, Dave? <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and launch that. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing today, Patty? I'm grand great, today. Great, great preamble there. And yes, we got to take these politicians to task for spending our money. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I want to talk about the uh, the airlines now. Um, my uh, my wife, she went to Fort McMurray for her niece's uh, graduation there. She left last Saturday, and as of last night, um, she didn't have her luggage. And there's a special president there for her and everything like that. And you can't get a hold of anybody. There is absolutely no customer service out there now from any of them. And I'm just ripping mad. Well, I totally get it. Uh, and I'm traveling late this week, and I'm kind of nervous about luggage, too. Uh, okay, so, you know... When the government, the federal government told us, well, Canadians kind of forgot how to travel. Nonsense. The airlines and the airport authorities forgot how to service their passengers. So whether it be the lack of staff and, you know, with the vaccine mandates and questions and random testing gone by the wayside, obviously that wasn't the contributing factor. They just haven't staffed up to meet the travel demand, which, of course, was fairly predictable. People had travel vouchers, the pent-up demand, given the fact that we hadn't been anywhere in a couple of years. So this was all entirely understood that there was going to be a lot of travel this year. But here we are. The buddy of went out to visit his uh, family in Calgary uh, a couple of weeks ago. He's been back for seven days, still doesn't have his bag. He went from Calgary to Pearson to St. John's, still does not have his luggage seven days later. So there's a stockpile of bags in some of the major airports, including Toronto's Pearson, that is just driving people around the bend. You know, and then add to it, some of the delays on the tarmac, of course, contribute to this. So you've got p- passengers sitting in planes for hours before they get to disembark or deplane and get into the terminal, waiting for the carousel to start, start spinning. That doesn't happen. The connection baggages are not being put on the next aircraft. It's just mind-boggling how bad it is. No, it's it's absolutely disgusting. Like, you know, she left uh, Saturday morning, and she never got in. It took her 24 hours to get to Fort McMurray. You know, it's just absolutely disgusting. And like I said, you can't talk to anybody. I I called 10 different numbers to try and get a hold of somebody to find out where the luggage is to, and nobody can help you. And it's just the, the absolute grossest customer service I've ever seen. And, you know, sometimes when it was, if you had a bad experience with pick an air carrier, you know, Air Canada, WestJet, whoever, you always had the option to, well, I'm going to spend my money with the other carrier. But it's apparently it's across the board. Whether it be the low-cost airlines or no-frail airlines or the two majors, people are experiencing the same or eerily similar baggage concerns regardless of who they're flying with. The airports themselves simply are not prepared for the volume of passenger traffic. They're just not. No, you know, the airports maybe not, but like it's the the carriers, like you said, WestJet. Oh yeah, I'll include the airlines with the, with the airports. Yeah, all inclusive. You know, it's it's just absolutely disgusting that you can't even talk to anybody. Um, you know, you talk to somebody and they're from another country, and they're just they're just uh you know, people just taking calls. They have no idea what's going on. 
Not good enough, Rob. Not good enough to say the very least. No, and uh, I just want—I just wanted to blow a bit of steam off there, and I appreciate you taking my call. I'm glad you called. Take good care and good luck. Cheers. Okay, Rob. Bye bye. Uh, one more before we go to the break. Let's go to line number two. Verna, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hiya. Hi. I'm here. I'm going to talk about transportation and infrastructure, but it's not about the boats today. It's about, uh, I don't know, people that are aware coming up off the boat from on Belle Island. Uh, people have the signs on the side. On proper, on proper pri- private property, like signage to just tell people that what we have on Belle Island is cars, hairdressers, or restaurants, or whatever. Um, well, uh, the high roads, which is transportation infrastructure, came over yesterday, and they start taking them down. Here we are. We're talking about tourism, come home year. Now they're taking these signs all down. These signs are on private property, but now they're telling you you have to be registered with the Newfoundland Tourism, and you will have to apply for a permit for transportation and infrastructure of the high roads because there is a uh, clause in there, an act, with the highways uh, for the speeds. When you're going a certain speed, it will distract you for the signage. Uh, we don't do 100 on Belle Island. And going up the beach hill, you're lucky you can get 10 kilometers out of it. <laughs> but this is a new one that's here. But yet, we don't have, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but the high roads, transportation infrastructures, they have one backhoe that services Bell, from between Balleen and Holyrood. But yesterday, they took the uh, loader and brought it over here to take these uh, signs down. They can't fix the culverts over here, but they can come over and take signs down. And you have to, like I say, apply. If you're registered with the tourism, you have to apply for these permits. So I guess that's more money going into transportation and infrastructure. But the signs are already there. They're on private property. But no, that don't apply. It's because of the Highway Act. Right. And just distraction. Like I say, I can see what they're talking about if we're on a highway, but Patty... How fast can you go up the beach hill? Yeah, I know. I've been up the beach hill. The, <laughs> and it's inconsistent, right? You know, along the highway, remember, it's not that long ago that they made all these private businesses take down their sign because of so-called distractions or lack of permit or the lack of uh, uh, continuity between the types of signs people were seeing. Ugh. Then there's a guy who trimmed... come home here. Like, it's tourism. Yeah, I know. This is advertising for people when they're coming here to see. Do you think that maybe it is a democracy? Bell Island, go away. No, because I think it happens in a variety of places. It just, you know, if there was a bit of consistency, it would also be helpful. And if it's simply a cash grab for the basis on, on permits, and that's ridiculous as well. You know, there's a guy who trimmed my trees. He had a little sign on a light pole on some spot on Logie Bay Road, and boy, they came after him like dogs on a bone to take down his little tiny tree pruning sign. So I guess sometimes it feels pretty heavy-handed. I understand your concern. But couldn't they, couldn't they come over and fix the potholes? So people can go to these certain places that you're not going into the ditches, trying to dodge all the potholes that are on the highway. The high roads, roads, transportation infrastructure are responsible for. Spend your time wisely and the money. Fair enough. No argument come from me. You know, priorities are important, aren't they? You know, attendance yeah, to the sign versus anyway. Okay, appreciate the time, Bernard. voter to tear this down. But, but yet ha- can't get a backhoe because right. they only got one to service the whole area. Come off it. You know, it's time to wake up, look at the whole, 
infrastructure and transportation. I mean, our highways, we, our, our boat system last year was totally screwed. Now they're going to screw the signs. Give us a break. Thanks for this, Verna. Thanks. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. There has indeed been a deal struck between the Diamond Group and the Greater NL Partnership and the Stephenville Airport Authority and the town to have Carl Diamond and his group of companies take over the operations there. We'll find out more about the deal when we come back after this break and speak with the president and CEO of the Diamond Group. That's Carl Diamond. Talk away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president and CEO of the Diamond Group of Companies. That's Carl Diamond. Mr. Diamond, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well. Sorry about the delay. Well, that's okay. It's all good. So right off the bat, congratulations. Thank you so much. There was a lot of skepticism when the proposal was made in September and a deadline in December. It came and went. People were saying, well, there's nothing to see here. What can people anticipate this proposal will look like, and when will our work start up in Stephenville? Well, we're looking to uh, revitalize the the lighting project on the runway in the very near future. We're already compliant with uh, Transport Canada um, certifications and stuff. We're just looking to upgrade from the incandescent lights now to the LEDs. Uh, And then we're, you know, looking to um, get working as soon as we can on on all aspects of it, Uh, revitalizing the aprons. There's a lot of growth coming up through the concrete uh, there now. So resurfacing, uh, another feasibility study, pavement uh, impact uh, assessment, and then working on the the master plan that we've been developing over the last uh, almost year and a half now. So, Were there any specific hurdles that had to be overcome between December and now before the deal was finalized that you can talk about? Uh, there was there was a lot of in due diligence and uh, to their credit the airport board that is in place now uh, worked very very hard with us to sort of clear up a lot of the administrative stuff that was uncovered during, during due diligence this is all historical stuff that was not uh, part of what they've done they just inherited a lot of issues when they when they took over and that's a volunteer board as well and they put a lot of heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears into uh, helping us to get all the administrative stuff sorted out with the airport so that we could move forward with yesterday. Before we get into vertiport possibilities and the drones that are going to be manufactured, let's go with the airport operations as they once were. When Air Canada pulled out in the late 80s, it's a real wonder that the Stephenville Airport is still a viable option today. So what does it look like in trying to reinstate any more passenger travel? Because we're feeling the same pinch, whether it be at St. John's International or other places where we've lost a lot of routes when you lose them or it's hard to get them back. What does it look like? Describe how you're going to reinstate passionate traffic because every every hub is clamoring for a route which doesn't seem to be as easy as easy as easy as it sounds. No, absolutely. And and to the, the residents of Stephenville, to their credit, and the town councils, uh, Mayor Rose, the town council councils before, uh, they kept this airport viable uh, using taxpayers' dollars for a lot of years to be able to keep this uh, in good enough shape that we could always accept emergency flights. Like we had an Egypt Air flight, uh, a 777 land in in January of this year for a medical emergency. Uh, The guys on the ramp, uh, they certainly handled that with uh, grace and professionalism and uh, enough that the President of Egypt was able to send us a message to say thank you so much for the quick turnaround time. So with that, uh, you know, post-COVID, we have to be able to, um, you know, work this in where 
we're a boutique airport where we're, say, a class other as opposed to a class A or a class B, which would be the capital airports or the provincial capitals. So we have a, a very unique distinction in being class other and being uh, one of the only privately owned AKO class airports in the world. So with that, we have that kind of uh, niche market we're going for. So we have Sunwing now coming in uh, weekly. Uh, hopefully, we're going to be able to increase that with the packs loads on the planes. Uh, and then working with the ultra low cost carriers um, and then the other airlines in around, we're hoping to attract more. Um, you know, post COVID is very difficult. They don't expect air travel to get back to its pre pandemic levels to at least 2025. The Has, airlines have also. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, pardon me. I didn't mean to interrupt. Finish your thought. Uh, and, and then the airlines themselves are also reevaluating how they uh, do, uh, you know, national, regional, and uh, how they uh, do their different route structures and stuff like that. So, but there is enough air traffic coming uh, that, you know, every airport is, is going to get back into a, a good groove in the next couple of years. Has your uh, group uh, finalized the ownership stake bid for Urban Airport? Yeah, we're finishing that off this week now. The the airport itself with Stephenville, it was the sort of the catalyst for all these other ones to come through. Now that we um, now that we have uh, Stephenville Airport, we can confirm that uh, the first Verta port will be going into Stephenville. And then uh, from there, we finalize the deal with these guys uh, at Urban Airports this week. They've been fantastic to work with. What's a Verta port? Essentially, it's a, we call it a truncated cone. Um, so uh, we use it uh, for the air taxis. Of course, they're a bit off from certifications yet. There's a company, Joby, in the States that did get their Part 135, which means they can take passengers in their um, in their aircraft. But we look at this, too, like helicopters, like uh, Bell 212s and stuff like that. They can land on the top of the vertiport, on the cone itself. Then an elevator lowers it down so the passengers can get out within the uh, within the airport itself. So in that small cone, which is probably about half an acre in total with parking lots, uh, there's retail, there's restaurants, there's our galleries. It's a very uh, boutique-looking um, little airport but it's it's meant to to be a sort of a hub almost like a bus station or a train station just for aerial vehicles one of the big facets of your proposal is the manufacture of these massive drones what kind of expansion is required on the property to accommodate this well, we've got lots of property. We've got close to 1,300 acres on Stephenville. So what we did is we took uh, sort of the footprint that Bombardier has at Downsview in Toronto, looked at their building size, visited the site, all that stuff to make sure that what we were uh, the footprint we were putting on there was appropriate. Um, there's also a glide path within uh, airport speak where you can only have um, a glide path two degrees out from the runway itself. So you can't have a 90-foot building 10 feet from the runway. So we looked at uh, different sizes of buildings that we would need on there. And then from there, uh, we sort of built out the footprint uh, and our master plan to what a manufacturing facility would look like. Describe these drones and what they'll be used for. So for us, you know, being military uh, for years, being a veteran, um, we're not in that kind of, I know people said kill chain before. We're certainly not in that anymore. These are purely cargo, purely logistics uh, drones. The ones we have, we have several different sizes of these. One's about the size of a C-130 Hercules. The other one's the size of a, a Buffalo, if anyone from the military world remembers that kind of plane. It just retired uh, a couple of months ago. 
Um, so one carries 52,000 pounds uh, of cargo, aside from the uh, weight of the aircraft itself. The second one carries about 32,000 pounds. We designed these to carry sea cans uh, up north to our mining partners uh, and then to um, bring food and, and uh, goods up to northern communities. So no military application whatsoever? No, that's not our intention at all. Uh, you're, you're pledging some 5,000 additional jobs for the region. Are the bulk of those jobs inside the manufacturer of the drones, or give us an idea of the job breakdown? So what we're doing is we're putting in a new terminal uh, at the airport, about 200,000 square feet. That's going to have about um, 15 gates on it. Uh, we're not going to need all those right away, but we're trying to future-proof the airport for when we do need those. Um, so we're looking at the entire airport staff. We're looking at all the uh, manufacturing, plus interstate construction phases from the airport terminal itself up to the uh, uh, up to the drone manufacturing facility and anything we want to do beyond that. So I think 5,000 over the course of this project is going to be conservative, whatever, you know. Yeah. So you already have partners lined up for the use of the drone. You mentioned mining partners in the north. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's also some concerns that came from Stephenville Council regarding the fire hall and the $10 million to purchase and to improve the fire hall. Is that part of this deal? Uh, well, we pledged uh, $10 million through a corporate guarantee to the town of Stephenville because uh, we obviously that we're going to need a fire hall as well with the increase in population that we're expecting to come in for workers. Um, Stephenville needs additional infrastructure for the fire hall. So for us, we didn't want to tie up 10 million operational funds uh, to go in escrow for two to three to four or five years even uh, while we wait for the fire hall stuff to be to be sorted out with regards to environmental permits and all that stuff. So we came with a hybrid solution to put a corporate guarantee in place so that we'd be able to use our $10 million for operational funds now to create new jobs immediately. And then once the town is ready, then we we do it on an invoice basis where we go through and do the RFPs, RFQs, RFIs, and then be able to do this in a very logical way so that we're not just throwing money at something, hoping for the best. And then, you know, I don't see any confusion with that. Uh, that's something that uh, our legal team worked out with the town's legal team, and everyone's satisfied with that. And the airport board itself was satisfied with that. So this corporate guarantee, is it binding? Like it's a, a, a permanent pledge, a commitment? Uh, for us it is because I can't take the airport and move it anywhere. So it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's binding as can be because the town holds the uh, taxes on the airport. So if I don't give the corporate guarantee, they can raise the taxes until they get their $10 million back. So for us, it's, it's as binding as can be. I, I, like I said, I can't put the airport in my pocket and, and move it to Buckins, so I don't have a choice. Understood. What's the overall financial commitment you're looking at? Uh, at least $200 million to start uh, with this with this airport, but, you know, we're looking at over the course of this, and, and you know, I plan on uh, being on this airport for at least next 100 years, maybe not myself, but, you know, the company uh, the company itself at least. So $200 million is what we're looking to do uh, initially. That's the costing structures that we put in place for a new terminal, for the runway lighting, for the new vehicles on the airport, um, all the infrastructure that comes with that. So, what role? And then work out. What role does Greater NL Partnership play? Who are they? What's their role in this deal? So essentially, I started that company so that we could have a Newfoundland-centric company employing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians on an airport in Newfoundland. Um, 
what we want to do with that is the partnership is not necessarily a partnership between corporations. The partnership is a partnership between my company and the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to give them priority. So if that's in hiring jobs, if that's in companies giving uh, giving them priority in uh, the RFP process, um, we want to give as many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians work on this airport as possible. They get the right of first refusal on everything that happens. So the partnership itself is us giving back, not using taxpayer dollars to be able to fund all this. We have not asked for a cent from anybody um, uh, in the government to be able to, to do this. Has the capital been secured? Yes. Oh, yes. How many people work for the Diamond Group of Companies? Uh, it depends. We try to keep that close hold because we're working on different projects that uh, are not publicly known. Um, I will say 35. It's not that we're trying to, to hide that. It's just some of our uh, the classifications of our projects are not publicly known because of some of the work we do down south. So. Well, 35, I would say. Well, we really appreciate you making time. I'm sure the people on the West Coast are thrilled that this type of investment will be injected into their community and, I guess, the surrounding area. Anything else you'd like to have, offer this morning, Carl, while we have you? No, I, honestly, uh, I've got a lot of nice messages over the last couple of days of support and, and thanks. And, uh, you know, we're doing this for the people. We're looking for a generational shift that young people in Newfoundland and Labrador will have opportunities that they don't have to move away. They can get trained, they can live, and they can work uh, generationally uh, at our airport, and that's what we want. I want kids that are my daughter's age, five years old, to grow up to grow up with uh, only opportunity. And I think that's what we're doing here is we're hoping that, you know, they're only going to know work and not have to go to Alberta. That's what I want for this. And I think that's that's the path we're on now. I think that's good for everyone. Once again, congratulations. Thank you for making time for the show. We'll all anxiously watch as the proposal develops further out on the West Coast. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate it. Take good care. Bye-bye. It's Carl Diamond, President and CEO of the Diamond Group of Companies. And look, there was, I think, more skepticism than optimism, uh, optimism associated with this project. But it looks like it's full steam ahead. You want to comment on what you heard there or bring up a topic of your choosing? You can do it right after this break. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Morning to you. I never got all your preamble, but the preamble I got, uh, I think there was two good news stories, Alex Newhook and Stephen Newhook. Yeah, I mean, I think that is exceptionally good news uh, for Stephenville and surrounding area. I mean, if there's going to be $200 million of investment and 5,000 additional jobs and reinstated passenger traffic, I guess it all remains to be seen how successful either of these areas are, but it sounds like pretty good news at this moment in time. Well, what were you going to do with Stephenville Airport? I mean, say there's nothing but a, a drain on Stephenville, and if they got money coming into it, good for them. And good for the Diamond Group. Sure. But uh, what I really called about that day was that lady from uh, Bell Island. Okay. Uh, when she said there was only one loader from, where was it, from Holyrood to uh, Portugal Gold? No, I don't think that's true, but uh, I don't know how many loaders there are in the region. Yeah. So, you well, would imagine there's more than one, but anyway, yep. But imagine now they had to take one motor and bring it to Bell Island, just take take down a few signs. To me, this is nothing but a tax grab. 
everything that I hear about from this government now is tax. You need a permit. You need a permit. Well, they're soon going to need a permit to breathe air here. I mean, you've got John Haggie in there. He's got a plan. Crystal in hell got a plan for regionalization. This is nothing but a tax grab. And every person I've talked to, and to mention regionalization, all I can hear is the GD government. Yeah. The GD government and tax grabs. One backhoe from Bali into Hollywood, we're told. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, regionalization, I think, you know, they've just got off to a shaky start. I don't know how it's going to be put back on the rails because if the most, for the most part, the communities that are most upset are the local service districts. And when they weren't involved in the initial consultations, they weren't involved in the working group, they haven't been involved formally since the report came from MNL to the provincial government, of course they're going to have questions. When things are vague, when they are misunderstood, when they are... Uh, when people are sitting across tables, or pardon me, unable to sit across tables to be part of the initial conversations, then there's always going to be this type of reaction. I'm not surprised at all. I think some examples of regionalization are going to work, and sometimes I think some of these uh, partnerships or collaboration are going to be inevitable. They're going to be the only way forward. You know, and it doesn't have to be one size fits all. All of the 25 zones have the exact same framework. I don't think that works. It probably doesn't make any sense. But there's already examples of shared services and cost savings that are already in place. So. I think it's a, a conversation that's coming, whether people like it or not. Yeah. And uh, according to what I can understand, and I can hear that uh, I am here in Blaketown, uh, Whitburn is going to be able to tax us. And uh, even on the other end, even Hertz Content could come here and tax us. So, you know, this is ridiculous. I paid $12,000 for an artesian well. Are they going to provide water to me? No, they're not. No, they're not, but it also, says, it also says directly in the report, it doesn't mean that everybody in uh, one region or another is going to have to pay the exact same level of taxation. Because nobody, it would be patently unfair, and it actually happens here in St. John's. People paying the same amount of tax without the same level of service. So that's going to be the key area of focus. People are not going to want to, nor should they want to, spend money to not get anything in return. I get that. Why would it? I'm in the same boat. Why would I want to pay for something I'm not going to get? So that's where, you know, that's a great example of why the conversation has stalled. Is because people said, well, I was told. Told by who? Is it accurate? Is it real? Is that what's happening in one region or another? We don't know. And that's why the conversation has been so tricky to navigate. Well, like everything else, buddy, Andrew Fury promised openness. And there hasn't been any openness. You take the case of Bruce Chalk. Uh, suspension, and he's still getting paid. Uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, where was he? Uh, he had this hit away, or did the government have it hit away? About, uh, and if it wasn't for Paul Lane, this would never be brought out. Yeah, the with pay bit, I would imagine, is part of the contract, as opposed to one government or another deciding to pay him. All those things are generally determined with what kind of contract is in place. But anyway, they need to get that work done ASAP. That report has got to be in the hands of the members of the House of Assembly and the, the Management Commission well before the House reopens in November so that we can get this settled once and for all. <laughs> That's like uh, peeing into the wind. Mm, not so sure, but uh, anyway, John, I appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Oh.
very much. All the best. Bye bye. Thank you. You're welcome. You. Okay, bye, John. All right, let's go take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty show left to speak with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at one on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. That's Paul Din. He's the Shadow Minister for Health and Community Services. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, great show. I was listening to you yesterday, uh, the many call-ins, and uh, I was listening to the news last night, and I thought I should call in. Uh, there's, again, a continuing discussion, of course, around uh, around the need for doctors and more people losing doctors. I've had... Uh, Quite a few conversations with the mayor down in uh, Whitburn, and of course we had the mayor Bonavista was on the news last night. And uh, I, I just, look, you know, when we talk about the shortage of doctors, and we see, you know, there's 125,000 now that they're saying are are without a family doctor. Uh, I looked at the, the news here just recently with regards to Nova Scotia, and you know, we say it's a complicated process, and, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, but Nova Scotia, in this last fiscal year, our neighbours. Uh, attracted 163 new doctors uh, in the last year. Now, they lost 68 because you're going to be losing them uh, because uh, they're getting old, <laughs> just like our population, right? They were all aging. But when I look at this and, and the health accord that's out there, we have a um, we have a period here now before the health accord really kicks in and starts seeing seeing some uh, some uh, results, positive results. But we have a you know four or five year period or more where we got to address this doctor shortage and uh, the hubs and and uh, the collaborative care units are all all good. But again, they all need. They all need uh, resources, human resources, to to operate that. So I was looking, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I look at and I'm trying to look at here is what are other provinces doing, you know? And I don't want to simplify it, is, you know, but but when you look for a car, you shop around and you look for the best deal. And we should be looking at what what's working in other provinces and jurisdictions because we're all after the same. We're all after the same. What are they doing that's able to attract uh, doctors to their jurisdictions? And, uh, you know, things like Nova Scotia, of course, has come home to Nova Scotia program uh, that that helps uh, encourage doctors and physicians to come to their province. They have a primary care physician incentive program. They off, they actually offer a little bit more in, in, in financial incentives than, than we do. And But, I mean, it's obviously working if they're getting 160 new doctors in the last year. And I look at, you know, Prince Edward Prince Edward Island is another good one. You know, they offer, they have a referral program. If a family member uh, is able to encourage a, uh, a nurse to, to come to PEI and and uh, and take up a job, they, they receive a cash reward for doing that. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking at, things outside the box. They also, which is something PEI does, uh, they look at creating relationships with those who are going through school early, early in the, in the program, and they maintain that relationship throughout and encouraging people to stay and build, building that rapport with the students. And maybe that's something we should be doing, you know, rather than, you know, showing up at graduation and then shaking a hand. You know, you talked about yesterday about the 80-odd the uh, doctors walking across the stage. I mean, how many of those did we try to create a rapport with when they first went in? I don't you know? know. It's yeah. a good question. Um, if it's all simply about money, then... 
that might work for some doctors. It might be their keen, might be their only focus. Yeah. And I'll add to it another province that's do, uh, doing things differently is British Columbia. Yeah. So they give you a $25,000 signing bonus. The interested residents in their first year will be making $295,000 plus, which is normally the salary for the second year. Yeah. They're also doing debt forgiveness, which is interesting. 50000 I think, is in the first year. Uh, 20000 medical training, debt forgiveness each year after up to five years. So, you know, if it's about money, then there's ways to talk about it because if it's only about money, then let's pay more money. But if it's about a variety of things, an all-inclusive package for attracting a doctor, that brings upon a little bit of a different feel for me. You yeah. know, I, let's look at the graduate issue for a second. So at Mons Med School, we're told by Dean Steele that some 65 to 70% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians graduating from the school will stay. Now that New Brunswick has given up funding five seats at that school, we now have 65 seats for locals. So hopefully if 70% of those five stay, that helps. But that's only an annual number. So we're not talking huge numbers. No. But every doctor will count. So I think the recruitment issue is not only the regional health authorities. It's not just Dr. Megan Hayes. It's not just the Department of Health Community Services. It's the communities, too. They do play a role. I know Haggy was browbeaten for saying something like welcome baskets or whatever it was he said. But then you look at what's been successful. Yeah. When the community plays an active role to try to create an atmosphere that makes it attractive for a doctor, I think all of those things in combination are what we're going to have to see done. I, I agree. I mean, the, you know, you think of the grand seduction. You know, that's not far, that's not far off, you know, from how communities got to uh, have to go through the, to get doctors. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned British Columbia, and, and it's not all about the money. I mean, uh, what was clear, clear throughout COVID uh, when we had our frontline uh, uh, health care workers working, you know, enormous hours, and, and, and well, well, they still are, nurses and, and, and such are still working enormous hours. Uh, child care was an issue, you know, and British Columbia uh, certainly offers uh, incentives like child care and support for housing and travel for recruitment of, uh, of um, nurses and that to, to rural areas of the province. So British Columbia is doing that, doing other things outside of just, you know, uh, giving, handing out money. But, uh, but that's my point here is that there's many provinces and jurisdictions that are doing a lot of different things. Some are working for them, some are not. Uh, if we're in the game and we need the doctors and the physicians and the nurses and the nurse practitioners, if we need them here, we should have a good understanding of what's happening elsewhere and let's do one better and what works to bring them here. Uh, you know, that, that's the main driver there. And even when you talk about international students and nurses, I mean, British Columbia also uh, has a process there to ensure that, uh, that international nurses and, interna and doctors coming uh, to their uh, province uh, have a process that helps them navigate to becoming certified and qualified. In fact, they put, put their uh, international doctors would spend three months under a, a BC physician that, uh, that would evaluate what you're doing. So, so there's provinces that are doing very different and innovative things, and uh, some of them are not outside the box. Some of them are the common sense approaches. But for us here in this province, we, we, we need the doctors. We need the doctors, we need the nurse practitioners, we need the nurses, we need all those, those uh, healthcare uh, professionals. Uh, I just, you know, we can't be waiting for the uh, health accord to kick in. We need to start doing something now to promote our province and get them here. And, you know, by looking at other provinces, we can pick and choose what works and come up with our own program as something that needs to be done sooner rather than later. 
and we have to be honest, is that, look, I love this province. I moved home from a great life in Alberta, and I plan on staying. And I absolutely understand that the issues surrounding the viability, sustainability of small rural communities is something that we are all concerned with, and we hope that they can find ways to do yeah. it. We also have to think about how attractive the province is as a whole, how attractive the some of the more smaller, isolated communities are for a doctor to set up shops, set up a clinic. You know, some for some doctors, that would be the ideal lifestyle. They'll think, man, a life on Fogo Island as opposed to downtown Toronto, bring it on. But maybe not all. And then, you know, like the buddies of mine who are surgeons, they want to be in the operating theater. People who are OBGYNs, they want to be delivering babies. And so, you know, to talk about smaller clinics and smaller hospitals, we're going to have to be extremely aggressive and creative to attract or to retain a doctor in any of these communities. Add in then the relationship with the regional health authorities. Add in the training opportunities and the type of resources available in one clinic. Add in the cost of living. Add in access via air. All of these things will be things that doctors consider because there's probably no one more in demand than a healthcare professional at this moment of time in this country. Country, and I would suggest most of the modern world. Oh, I know, no doubt, and and it's all about promotion. It's all about get, getting them. It's, it's not, it's not too much unlike what we do for immigration, in promoting, uh, you know, our province as a place for immigrate immigrants to come. But I mean, we should be approaching that. Like I said, you know, the Nova Scotia has come home to Nova Scotia program uh, for doctors and physicians and nurses, and maybe that's the approach we do. And look, you know, today, uh, I assume uh, it's today or the next couple of days, uh, the premier's up meeting with the. Atlantic premiers in, uh, I think, Nova Scotia. And, uh, you know, it's a good opportunity to talk to, well, talk to the premier of Nova Scotia on this. Well, why is what's working for you? Because it's obviously working if they're, they're attracting 162 new doctors. So I would hope the premier and, and, and his entourage would have a uh, have a sit down and come up, come back with some uh, some good uh, uh, notions on what could be done to improve our recruitment here in the very in the near term, because that's what we need. And uh, you know, uh, I go back. You know, when you talk about uh, some programming, we for come home year, we we uh, government gave out so much dollars to each community to help them spruce up signage and, and the like, which is all good. Uh, maybe we should be looking at a, at a program that allow, prevent, or provides dollars to, to municipalities and communities to help them promote for doctors. You know, do their, their their little video, do whatever it takes to encourage doctors to come to their communities. You know, it's, it's a full court press when it comes down to it. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thanks yeah. for this. Thank you. Thank Take you. care. Okay. Bye bye. Paul Din is the PC member for Topsail Paradise. You want to pick up on what he was talking about? You know what to do. Just give us a shout if you're in the St. John's Metro region. The number to dial to get in the queue 273 5211. Elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. And welcome back. Let's go to line three. Greg, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, sir. How about you? Not too bad, sir. Uh, I'm just calling again you now uh, regarding the condition of the Berger Road. Uh, probably four or five years ago, I called you regarding the situation with the road condition, deplorable conditions that it's in. And it seemed like after that time, I was talking to you that there were four or five of us in, in from Berger in different areas. We sat up a little committee and we kept the we kept the government on their toes, like say, with the condition of the road. People give us uh, their comments or whatever on the road. Mm-hmm. But over the last year or so, this, this little committee of, uh, I guess, 
went on or whatever, and now this year, all of a sudden, the road is down the shambles again. So, like I said, they're talking about Cologne here and, and stuff like that, but like I said, Virgil Road right now from, I said, Pedro Stray is going south towards Virgil is, is really not fit to fly over. What kind of, what's the last time there was any real work done on that stretch of road? Well, like I said, the last two or three years they've done some, like I said, made some really good progress, like I said, from going from the Trans-Canada going towards Virgil. Like I said, they put in probably, I don't know, last year, three or four good sixes, probably five or six kilometers in some stretches. And like I said, right now, the condition of the road from Trans-Canada going towards Virgil in about 80 kilometers, the road is not in too bad of a condition. But from Peter Strike here, which is 65 kilometers, I say, coming north from Virgil, and like I said, the road is, is wicked. It's not fit, like I said, and Virgil is known for its fog and rain and stuff. And trying to drive over there when it's rainy and the potters are filled with water, it's, it's treacherous. Like I said, people, you see it on Facebook all the time, people complaining. Well, when you get a right to complain, obviously, but. And like say, Mr. Parsons, he drives over once in a while, I would say. And staff rally like this year, all of a sudden, there's, there's no work, there's no work in the, there's no work in progress. Let's say there's a bit of coal patching being done. But let's say, as for any big work done this year, there's nothing in the works for Bursa Road for this summer. Do you know if there's any coming? Is it anywhere on the province's uh, list for this summer, this paving season? No, there's there's nothing, there's no no money lost for uh, any major work for the Virgil Road this summer. There's yesterday someone had on Facebook, uh, we had a group there, uh, he said there was three pallets of coal packs being done in the Buck Lake area. But like I said, it seemed like they there's one area and then they'll skip over another area and, and if the government don't want to do it or whatever, I don't see why they don't probably yeah, well, that, well, that's what the government does anyway, is put the tenders out. Uh, I appreciate the time, Greg. Keep us in the loop with what you see happening. Yes, my friend. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. okay, let's keep rolling. Line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Patty, uh, I uh, was up late last night. I couldn't get to sleep, and it's all because of the Colorado Avalanche and Alex Newhook. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's over. <laughs> Congratulations. He, he played his role in the team, you know. They're not all super scorers and all of that kind of stuff. Some of them just chase down the puck and make sure they don't get to make good plays and all kinds of stuff. But he was a great representative for the province. And I'm sure there'll probably be many more in his future. His future uh, is extremely bright. He's got the skills. Uh, He's a real ambassador. He's, when he was interested, he, uh, when he was interviewed, he did a magnificent job. Um, Patty, I want to talk about Mary. You had a first-time caller. I think her name was Mary, if I remember correctly, yesterday. And uh, she called. She was very exasperated. And uh, she, was, she didn't really have a whole lot of play. didn't feel like she had anywhere else to turn. Nobody else was listening to her. She had, she had concerns the way the province was going. Uh, I think her, her her main concern when she called you, uh, and I believe it's Mary, correct me on that, she was a first-time caller, yeah. and um, she was deeply concerned in her case. Uh, she sort of showed that through her thoughts on immigration, I believe, uh, but other, other things as well. 
So uh, I guess what struck me is that uh, not as much substance of what she said, and it was great for her to come in. I wish there were more Marys out there. You know, there's a very, very big frustrated population out there who think, who feel they have nowhere to turn. And uh, and so you fill in. We don't have a Dr. Phil and a Dr. Oz. We get a Dr. Patty. <laughs> so uh, she called, and uh, she was able to express her feelings, and she was treated very professionally by you. And, uh, you know, some of her thoughts are not where I would go. They're not feelings that I had, but uh, you did a, a great job of uh, allowing her to vent and allowing her to express herself and, and showing um, respect for her opinions. And, uh, you know, that that's a good rule. Well done on that. I hope more, more people will be a Mary and make the call to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was more callers. I mean, we do really well, thankfully. I appreciate the support the show gets. But more and more voices, I think, adds to the fabric of the show, which I think is beneficial to me, to Dave, to the station, and most importantly to the listeners. So, yeah, yeah. regardless of what your stance on issues are, we're, we welcome most everything. We had someone earlier speak to Dave who probably isn't someone that we should put on the air but you know the one concern I do have is not necessarily if everyone has every single fact straight about what kind of support one individual or another gets whether it be an immigrant and or different age groups here in the province you know the the concept of being able to support our own is real but we can also support newcomers because there is a need for newcomers in this province. I know a lot of people don't agree with that or understand that or believe that. But for my position, we do indeed need, whether it be educated skill set. Uh, you know, some of these people come. There's a Ukrainian woman who's a doctor. Hopefully she gets to set up shop and establish a clinic and a patient roster. So I get the concern, you know, we have to take care of our own. Charity begins at home. But we also have to be mindful of the fact that, like, particularly if we're talking about the, the Afghan refugees. They're fleeing the hands of the Taliban. We're thinking about Ukraine. They're running for their lives. So some yeah. of that to be included in our thoughts surrounding it, that's just how I try to approach it. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, and so be it. It's not for me to tell you how to think or what to say, but I think that's part of the equation, at least how I see it and I view it and how I talk about it. Yeah, my point is, that, and, and you know, they shouldn't be concerned about, you know, maybe not having all their ducks lined up and all their facts. And that's not what this is all about. It's about a chance to call in and exchange ideas. And uh, I haven't seen anybody yelled at on, on this program, and uh, and that, that should encourage them. So, you know, to those people, be a married. Uh, I want to jump to one other quick topic sure. if I can. You probably have our list. No worries. Um, and uh, my, my concern and my, my venting here this morning is about What's going on with the report on the behavior at the chief electoral's officer, chief electoral officer, um, and uh, how it appears to me, uh, and we feel very, I feel very powerless on this, it appears to me that it's being covered up. Uh, the report. And this is a very serious matter in that we had an election that was all kinds of controversy. Your line was covered and inundated with calls about concerns about the way the election was handled. Uh, and uh, and I think there are a couple of court cases, maybe two or three, that have been before the courts for over a year and a half now, which to me is completely unacceptable. Apparently, they say they can't find space to put them in, but you know, it's such a basic challenge to our democracy should be heard priority. Um, and yet, a report was done. It was submitted on, on the behaviors in the office. I'm not talking about the individual, but in the office. 
And it was sat on for three months by the speaker. Now, Patty, sometimes I put things at my desk and I don't find them for a couple of months. But I don't think I could put a report like that away for three months after having received it, not doing anything on it. So it sat there and then it it went to government. They say, oops, look, we just got this now. And then they tried to punt it over to somebody else to investigate. who probably punted it right back and said, this is not us. You're on your own there. And what happened yesterday is that a commission, a House Commission on a Management of the House of Assembly, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, uh, apparently, the, the Minister of Justice has been handling this for some reason. I, I don't know why. That, that commission reports to the House of Assembly. But the Minister of Justice, who's right knee-deep in this apparently, t- t- stands up and says, oh, the, the Management Commission sends it to us, and it's probably going to go somewhere else to be studied and looked at again. And the management com- the management commission is a, is a, appointed by government, and guess who chairs the management commission? The speaker of the house, the same one that sat on the <laughs> the report for three months, and they made a recommendation. Apparently, we're told to the minister of justice to send it somewhere to be studied further. Patty. I don't know. I've been watching what's going on in the United States and and things like that. I get that feeling is that we're powerless, is that these guys or girls do whatever they want. It's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll just keep it buried. We'll send it somewhere else now. Well, it was poorly handled uh, right from the get-go, which is part of the problem, I was, I would think. But I don't know about cover-up. If the report needs to see some vetting, because we are talking about individuals and their privacy, that makes sense to me. But there was never a need. If I'm the speaker, I get that report, I read that report, I put it in the hands of someone who delivers it immediately to the House of Assembly Management Commission – that day, the next day, not months later, not any of the, you know, the public commentary about there is a report or there's not a report or who has it or who doesn't, who's seen it, who hasn't. I mean, it's all just nonsense. There's protocols in place that need to be abided by in a timely fashion. We're talking about people's lives here. So let's go. So the recommendation from the committee was that it needs to be vetted. I get that. You can't just publicly disclose everything included not, in that not, report. And the suspension. Ready. Pardon? I'm sorry, Patty, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but not that committee. That committee is chaired by the same guy who sat on it for three months. Yeah, you know? I, I know, but what's the point for making what, what that? The hell, what is he even, well, what's he even doing there? What's he doing sending a recommendation to the minister, rather than to the House, where that report, where that commission? What's that person who sat on this for three months doing, chairing a committee and giving it the majority to tell the minister of justice, yeah, go ahead and delay this, send it somewhere else? You know, couldn't he have done this three months ago? Does somebody say yeah. this would never have been known if it wasn't for Paul Lane, if I remember correctly? I think it was Paul Lane who had the, you know, the guts to come out and say, hey, what's going on here at, initially? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. So I'm a Mary this morning. I'm uh, very frustrated. I'm very, you know, and I appreciate your your congeniality in dealing with this. But, Patty, this for, in my opinion, for our democracy, this sucks. This goes to the core of it. We had a we had an election that was mired in controversy. That it was the narrowest of wins. It was a majority of the minority, and and yet we have a court case that's approaching two years. The government will be over before that gets heard by the look of it. And now we got a report that itself could reflect on what happened on this election, maybe negatively. I don't know. 
but it, it, it keeps getting punted around so that nobody can see it. And this looks bad. And so I'm frustrated, and I call Dr. Patty DePent. Well, uh, and that's fine. I don't even think I'm trying to be collegial because I think we think the same thing, uh, that when you handle things poorly, you get poor outcomes. That betrays the, uh, what the citizens have been promised. So there's never been anything involved with this that has been handled anywhere near appropriately, as far as I can tell. So regardless of who sits on the Household Management Commission, it'd be, or the, pardon me, the Household, the Household Assembly Management Commission, you know, whether the Speaker belongs on it or not, the fact of the matter is we're at least th- three or four months behind where we should be with the handling of this report. And, you know, whether they had to have a proper consultation with Michael Harvey as well to say, uh, Mr. Harvey, can you please take this report and do the appropriate redaction so that we can publicly disclose it as soon as possible and bring this to an eventual head? But they didn't do any of that. And so now we don't even know if there's going to be a final report, a final investigation done before the House reopens in November so this can be dealt with. There's exemptions when the House is not open for things like suspending Mr. Chalk. Fine. But this has got to be done ASAP. There's no excuse to wait any longer for immediate and swift action here. Get this settled once and for all. I'll give you the last word, Mike. Well, no, that, that's pretty well. That, I've had enough words on it. But, Patty, thank you very much. And uh, to the Marys of the world out there, and, and Mary, if you're listening this morning, I suspect you are. You were a first-time caller. You did a magnificent job yesterday. And, uh, you know, as one listener, I, uh, we, do, we don't agree on your outlook on everything, but you, you made a fantastic call. So I'm glad you called in. Anybody else like her who's frustrated and got nowhere left to go and want to talk, speak about it, they should give a call here. 100%. Mary's always welcome. Okay, all the best. Patrick. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Derek's in the queue. He wants to talk about the recreational food fishery, which opens on the 3rd of July. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go Line 5. Derek, you're on the air. Uh, yes, good morning, Patty. Morning. I'm talking about the recreation food fishery. Yep. There's a few things floating around that if you got, say, five people aboard your boat, you're allowed 25 fish. You're allowed five per person for those who are actively fishing. Now, I suppose what that means, Derek, is if you've got uh, your toddler with you, that person wouldn't count as an active fisher. That's how I read between that line, but that's my understanding. Yes, sir. Okay, so so why isn't that the Minister of Fishery don't have this changed online? She's still saying that there's uh, only 15 fish per boat if you've got three people, three adults. Yeah, I don't know why they do it, because if we're going to have, look, I can read you, this is directly from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, So, the Newfoundland Labrador Recreational Groundfish Fishery is managed by a suite of regulations and management measures. The daily catch limit is five uh, five fish per person per day, and the maximum boat limit of uh, when three or more people are fishing is 15 fish. You will not be charged if you exceed the boat limit of 15 fish as long as each person has only their daily catch limit of five fish. However, it is important to remember that DFO has the ability to change or close this fishery if participants are not adhering to the combined set of regulations and management measures. So, if you have five people, you will not be charged with if you bring in 20, uh, 25 fish because you have five active fishers. That's how it's read. That's how it's written by DFO. Okay, okay. So thanks for making that clear. No problem at all. Appreciate the call. And you have a good day. You too, Derek. All the best. Okay, thank you. You're Bye-bye. welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you. 
Fatty, uh, I was wondering, the CBC News there last night came out about the, the seniors and the supplement with the 10% raise. Do you, you, you know anything about that? I do. Okay, so the I, I guess you're talking about old age security, are you? Yes. Okay. The well, let's start with the first one here. The folks who have been told they're getting a 10% raise if you're an income supplement or qualify for the seniors benefit, that kicks in on the 5th of July. 5th of July. Yep. But who's entitled to it though? Well, there's a definition for who qualifies. If you're on income supplement, people don't understand who that is, but so you're a senior, are you, sir? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Qualifying for seniors benefit. There's a net family income uh Seniors benefit. Just make sure I get the right numbers. Okay, so for the Newfoundland Labrador Seniors Benefit, the amount of the benefit will be phased out at a rate of 11.66% as net income increases between 29,004 and 41,007. In order to qualify for this benefit, the person must be 64 years of age or over by December 31st of the taxation year. So it's all once again about net family income as to who uh, qualifies. So that's the issue with seniors benefit here. There's some 50,000 seniors in the province who fall into that category. Oh, so I see. So I, I don't know. I don't know about if I was into it or not. I'm a single senior, see. For people who are actually uh, qualified for it, now with this 10% increase, there's no application or anything required. It's going to be automatic. Yeah. So that's on the, uh, the 5th of July, you say, Yes, sir. So uh, here's maybe a little bit more plainer speak. Whether single or as a couple, seniors with a family net income of up to $29,402 are eligible to receive the maximum benefit of $1,444. Okay. Okay, then, Patty, thank you very much. That solves that problem. Appreciate the time, Bill. Thank you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Goodbye. Uh, let's see. Let's go and take a break. Cyril's in the queue. He says... And uh, I get emails like this all the time. It's people need to worry less about family doctors, worry more about their health. We'll see what Sarah has to say right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Sarah, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good, good. I'd like to com- uh, compliment you on the job that you do. And I love your heart towards seniors. It really, uh, really touches me. I appreciate it, Sarah. Thanks uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um... I was trying not to rebut to all the other callers I just listened to while I was on hold. But just one second, Sarah. Can you take us off speaker so we can hear you a little clearer, please? I, 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 I got you on earbuds, actually. Okay. Well, let's see what we can do. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'll try not to rebut, but the guy complaining about the roads, um, you know, I... I drive 100 kilometers in rural Newfoundland every day. When I drive the speed limit, I find the roads are, uh, you know, passable. Um, I think there's better ways to spend our money than uh, filling potholes. And I think one of it is in uh, in healthcare. Uh, I started listening to your show during Snowmageddon. Uh, I had a business in the city. And you guys really kept me informed on what was happening. And it started a routine ever since then, listening to you. And I found, I, I phoned in a couple of times. I always find it a bit uh, anxiety-producing uh, to call you. And you still with you, right, Patty? Just listening. Okay, no, no. It, <laughs> um, so I find it a little anxious-producing. But anyway... I hear a lot of people calling about the shortage of doctors and the healthcare system. And it seems like um, there's no talk about 
how we can better take care of ourselves. Um, okay, how can I how can I simplify this? Um, there's very little talk on what we can do to take care of ourselves uh, health-wise, and I think a lot of the information we got is, is false. You know, there's a lot of people probably sitting home now with their three sugar under tea, uh, with their margarine under toast, raspberry jam. I'm thinking that's healthy breakfast. Well, that is a part of the reason for our healthcare crisis is the health of the population. I think we need to try and accept the fact that we have a large, poor, a large population, aging population with poor health. Um, obviously, we can't recruit doctors for a number of reasons. That's a complicated situation. I think one of the reasons we can't uh, probably recruit doctors is the fact that I don't know if doctors want to come to a population that's as sick as we are, you know? It's like I would imagine a teacher would hate to go to the classroom with people not interested in, in learning. So I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's part of the reason why healthcare doctors don't come here. I'm sure it's the weather, the cost of living, the cost of getting out of here. There's a bunch of reasons, but I remember a comment uh, the president of the Doctors Association made a while back on your show, and she, and her, and she was uh, talking about inflation at the time. And she said, you know, you go to the grocery store and buy a quart of milk and a loaf of bread, it's like you almost got to take out a mortgage. Now, I know she said it in jest, but I think she really should have followed it up with saying that, you know, we should not be drinking milk. We should not be eating bread. It's part of the reason why we're obese and, and we have such a high prevalence of, of diabetes is because of all the carbohydrates in our diet. You know, the human body does not need carbohydrates. It needs fat. It needs protein. And I'm only, I'm 55 years old. I started to get man boobs a while back there, Petty. And my whole body composition changed. And I thought, man, what's that to go with me? You know, I was always lean, uh, you know, always that same weight all my life. And when I started researching, you know, I would sit down and eat a bagel with light cream cheese and a bowl of fruit and a glass of orange juice and think, wow, healthy breakfast. It's not. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible breakfast. So I had to educate myself. And I think that people need to take responsibility for their own health and not just trust the doctors to take care of their woes because doctors like us, they're soluble, they're human. They're much like, you know, they make mistakes. I, I went into a doctor one time and sat down and gave him, gave him a, 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 a diagnosis or not a diagnosis, uh, told some of my symptoms and he punched it into an iPad and came back with a suggested um, you know, I suggested problem for my so-called symptoms that I gave him. So, you know, they're not the end all be all to our health. We are, we, we are first and foremost, we are, we are first and foremost the caretakers of our own health. Sure, but of course. Educate yourself on that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we try to talk about healthy lifestyle kind of stuff here in the program, and uh, you know, activities and the like, and organized sports and/or leisure. We try to broach these things, but we also have to realize that even family doctors is not necessarily about something that I've imposed on myself. You know, whether it be I'm diabetic based on diet, or I'm overweight based on my sedentary lifestyle, or whatever it is. You know. So the issue becomes a little more broad than that because humans 
are inherently imperfect. And even for an access to a family doctor, we had a caller, I guess, maybe yesterday or the day before, can't see a family doctor for the required referral to an oncologist. She's developed a lump in her breast. We might indeed have just picked up a bug, even though we did, you know, I go for a walk and I eat properly and stuff, and I get strep throat, and I need to see a family doctor versus try to clog up an emergency room. So there's lots of reasons why a family doctor and the shortage thereof is problematic. Even if you add in the aging demographic, I know some people don't like to hear that, but the part and parcel, generally speaking, as you age, there's more and more requirement for engagement with healthcare, and some of that absolutely could be with your family doctor or your pharmacist or your LPN or your MP. But we have a shortage across the board, which has made the wait list lengthy. And look, I'll take your point that in large part, I'm responsible for my own overall health. I, I totally get that. But I'm an imperfect person, and I'm going to do things that are not the healthiest options, just like I would imagine most people listening to the program this morning do. Yes, and I agree. I, you know, I agree. And the thing is, it's not about the shortage of family doctors. It's the shortage of family doctors is the reality that we need to accept and live with. And the government, hopefully, is doing their best to try and recruit family doctors. But if I live in rural Newfoundland, I need to accept my lot and understand my choices that I'm probably not going to have 24-7 emergency room near me. You know, this is this this is the reality. I, I need to accept my lot. That this this is probably not a reality. You know, we're we're looking for government to babysit our children and to take care of our dying parents. And you know, it, it's um, you know we need to start taking responsibility. And it all comes back, I think, to human nature. And I do agree that you know I sort of like this. You know, anyway, this is this might be a bit extreme, but I don't know if we'll be going this way or not. But you know, that people are on tears that, you know, if, if you choose to abuse your body, that maybe you don't get as quick a treatment as someone who takes we can't. We can't do that, Cyril. We, we simply cannot do that. But we got to protect. We got to protect ourselves from ourselves, right? Yeah, but we, not, we we can't do that. People be drinking. People be drinking and driving and smoking in their cars with their kids and everything else. We need to protect ourselves from ourselves. I know we can't do that. It's, that's what I said. I preface it by saying it seems a bit extreme, but I think that would be a more just and fair way to allot the resources that we have, and it also may change some of the behaviors of the people who choose to continue to drink, smoke, and eat, and and not take care of themselves. And I don't think today, really, with most people having a smartphone, there's any excuse for the ignorance. I, I really don't feel like some older people who may not have access to, you know, the World Wide Web, um, you know, I, I understand that they're probably stuck in their ways. But most people who got a, who got a, a, a cell phone or a smartphone can, can, you know, educate themselves on... Uh, how to take care of themselves. I mean, diabetes is crazy, and it's all caused by carbohydrates and sugar, you know. Um, and it, and and we can take such a big pressure off of our healthcare system if people were educated and try and started doing what they believe or what what would make them healthy. Because people do not understand. Again, I thought that orange juice, low fat diet, and a bagel was healthy way to go but it's not i'm better off eating eggs and avocados and and probably cheaper by eating these whole natural foods than buying these processors i look at i got a flyer here in front of me from one of the local grocery stores 
I tell you, I'd say about 85% of that food, I don't think humans should be consuming. Okay, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I'm not a dietitian, so I don't know what a 100% healthy diet looks like. But even, even the whole business of educating ourselves, lots of people out there know exactly what they're doing. They know that some of their choices aren't the most healthy for them, yet they make them. Why? Because we're imperfect. Some you know, people say, well, I can't afford milk, so I buy pop. Well, some people just like pop more than they like milk. They know full well what they're drinking and eating might not be the best idea. Sitting down to Jig's dinner is certainly not commensurate with a perfect diet that a dietitian would describe to you but I, I guess the summary point before I go to the news is we do indeed play the key role in our overall health that is true I don't pretend to be the picture of health I don't preach about it because I know that we all have our own struggles sometimes the hardest step to make on the pathway to better choices is the first step but uh, Sarah I'll give you the final word before I do have to get to the news okay. uh, yeah let's 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 not allow doctors and unions to hold us hostage anymore, you know? We need to take some responsibility for ourselves and, and, uh, and try and encourage government to, do, to, to spend our tax dollars wisely and not be held hostage by, 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 by doctors and unions, because I think we could end up there. Appreciate the time, Cyril. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. All right. It is indeed time for the news break. When we come back, still a load of show to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the scientific lead for NL Support and Research Associate for Quality of Care. Uh, NL, I think that's what that says. I ran out of space. Good morning, Robert Wilson. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program, sir. Tell us, talk about this survey that you were conducting. So basically, I just want to give you a, a bit of a background that this study is coming out of NL Support, which is a Newfoundland Labrador SPORE unit. And SPORE stands for Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research, which is an initiative coming out of the government of Canada. And uh, here in NL, we are uh, one of 10 units across the country. So what we do is uh, we're a support center dedicated to supporting patient-oriented research, which engages with patients focuses on patient-identified priorities and, and improved patient outcomes. And on this current project, which I'll, I'll briefly discuss shortly, um, uh, it was actually initiated by patients. And on our project, we had two very dedicated patient partners coming from NL Support's Patient Advisory Council. So just to give you a bit of context of what we're actually trying to do, it's, it's a survey. Um, it's about the, the pandemic uh, within long-term care. So the pandemic, obviously, you, you, you've obviously heard of it, Patty, <laughs> affected us all, of course. However, the long-term sector was hit pretty hard across the country. And so uh, we know that family members and visitors play a pretty valuable role in the care of residents of long-term care. So when those restrictions were actually put in place, um, an integral, integral part was removed um, to some capacity. So the survey felt, so what we, we thought was valuable was to study the impact of the visitor restrictions on the physical and mental well-being of residents and visitors, and we wanted to get their perspective of those actually experiencing it. And then we would, uh, you know, in some sort of capacity in a cycle of a learning health system, we would use that information to help inform our decision makers. So what we're doing is we're actually looking to hear from anyone in the Western health and Eastern health regions who have visited someone in the long-term care sector during the pandemic 
And even if perhaps that uh, resident had passed away during the, uh, the pandemic, we still want to get the, their, their perspective. We know the impact has been widespread and really a big negative impact for residents for sure. But the family members themselves, I mean, the anxiety of not being able to see your loved one must have been just anguishing day over day. And you're right, because it's not just the staff that provide certain levels of care for the residents. It's the family members as well. So in realistic terms, and we'll give out some more details about how to get the survey and what have you. But in realistic terms, given the fact that the pandemic presented some unique circumstances for restrictions and visitation or what have you, what will you do with the information in real terms? Like, how is that going to help make decisions in the future? Because if we're talking about keeping the norovirus or the COVID or monkeypox or whatever out of long-term care facilities or congregate living facilities, give us a, you know, a specific idea about how this is going to influence decision-making, if you, if you can. Well, well, you know, one of the biggest impacts of um, the restrictions was probably social isolation. Um, so, you know, perhaps some of this information can and provide some sort of sort of uh, solutions to perhaps providing uh, virtual technology or or um, being a bit more loose on restrictions i don't i don't want to kind of you know uh, jump ahead and and give that information i just want to you know um perhaps get the information from those actually experiencing it um collect that information into some sort sort of informative report and, and provide that to those who are actually caring in the long-term care sector so is this simply about the restrictions and visitation or what have you? Or are you going to include some of the other moving parts? And not operational issues, but like what it's meant for people to be separated from their loved ones and stuff inside long-term care. Or is this simply about the impact that the restrictions had on whether it be the mental or physical health of the resident and their family? It, it is it's strictly focused on the mental and physical well-being due to the social isolation and, and removing that integral part of the care team um, out of uh, the long-term care sector. So we... No, go ahead, Patty. Okay, sorry. You know, and not every long-term care facility had the same set of circumstances, you know, because there might have been certain activities promoted inside the home versus some homes that saw different kind of lockdowns based on the presence of the virus. Are you able to incorporate some of those different circumstances in different long-term care facilities to come up with pragmatic recommendations? No, well, I mean, we won't be able to kind of drill down to that sort of uh, level of information. It will be kind of high-level, informative information. We know, obviously, each uh, facility was uh, affected differently due to perhaps the virus um, entering the facility. So, you know, that, that that's up to the, the regional health authorities and managers to uh, judge that. But this is perhaps just kind of high-level for anything that perhaps comes within the future of, of, of how we can actually, um, you know, change things to, um, you know, uh, to help our residents uh, in long-term care the best we can. Let's just say my nan is in a long-term care facility. Do you want to hear from uh, me and my partner and my children? Because we all would have had a different perspective on what it meant. Absolutely. We want to hear from everyone who, have, who has visited a long-term care sector to visit a, a resident, a loved one um, within within that sector, and um, we want to get everyone's perspective. And of course, uh, with, you know, with this survey, the, the participation is actually voluntary, and the, the responses are completely anonymous. Um, so you know, you, you don't have to put your name on it. We just want to get the voice of the people and, and help our decision makers. So where can I find the survey if, if I'm inclined to participate? Uh, yeah, so you'll find uh, the survey on our website, which is www.nlsupport.ca, and we also have it on our Twitter and Facebook feed. Um, yeah. Uh, I appreciate this, and this is going to be important work because, you know, even though I was going to say it has passed because it hasn't, unfortunately so, 
to understand what the impacts have been can help paint a clearer picture of what we've gone through as opposed to just the broad strokes of people suffered. And what does that mean? And how do we include the information, the data we compile to make better decisions, if possible, in the future? I appreciate your time this morning, Robert. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Robert Wilson, Scientific Lead for NL Support, looking at the impacts of restrictions uh, inside the long-term care facilities on the residents and, of course, for their loved ones who, you know, even some of those window visits, it's just not the same. It's just simply not the same. Uh, let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's try to take a break on time. When we come back, Trudy's in the queue to talk about employment insurance from wide angle. We'll find out right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Trudy, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Hi. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. Okay. I'm calling because um, I'm so frustrated with the EI right now. I've been waiting 11 weeks, and I still haven't got my claim approved. 11 weeks. I got, no, like, no money come in from because of the government. My hus- Me and my husband live in the western part of Newfoundland. We go away in the, we- in, the, in the fall, and we come home in the spring. He gets laid off. We go to the same jobs every year. They gave me 21 days. That's what they tell me every year, 21 days, and someone will get back to you. I'm now 55 days. I called them. They expi- expedited it. And said someone will call you in five days. On the sixth day, I call. Oh, they expect expect that. What you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, for three days. Then it was one day. Then it's another one day. Right now, I'm at 55 days. I got mortgage payments. I got bills, and I want food on my table. And no matter what I do, nobody does a thing for me. I don't know what causes oh, some of these. I'm so frustrated. <laughs> I'm sure you are. I'm, I know full well that Service Canada, CRA, these organizations are bombarded, but they are the ones who set the timelines. They tell exactly. us this is going to take X amount of time, days or weeks, and when they don't even hit their own targets, of course people are going to be frustrated. Sometimes there has been some help offered by some of the staffers and or the members of Parliament to get these things settled once and for all. I have one case a couple of weeks ago where one of the members got involved and the person who was waiting for their EI, they got their claim approved and the money started to roll. So I don't know if you're going to consider doing that, but that one person had great success with it. So Really? You know. Yep. Yeah, because um, th- mine's, mine's still on review. It's not even assigned to anyone yet. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like It's still just sitting there and they'll ask you, did you call, did you check your My Service Canada account? Yes, I have. Every day, twice a day, morning and night, and nothing's changed. Nothing. So then they said they was going to put me in like as a, a dire dire case, and I should hear somebody from somebody yesterday. Well, there's another day gone by. So 55 days later, I'm still sitting there. So there was no problem with the paperwork, nothing at all. It hasn't been assigned, hasn't been evaluated. Period. Nothing haven't been done since I filed on April the 24th. Well, I know it's sometimes been felt like a, a throwaway piece of advice here. You know, talk to your MHA, talk to your member of parliament. But all I can say is the one person who I put on to uh, their member, one of their staffers was actually listening to the show and said, if that person's in our region, tell them to give me a shout and uh, I'll see what I can get done. And by lo and behold, the person sent me an email two days later saying it's, it's now been approved and the check rolled of however many days after that. So right. who, who is your member? Uh, Scott Reed. Call him. Well, that's your member of the House of Assembly. Who's your member of Parliament? Yeah. So that would be Goody Hutchings then, I guess, would it? Yes, yes. Okay. Get her office on it. 
right? Okay. Because this is a federal program. They may or may not be able to help you, but that's the only thing I know what to do because it's impossible for me to do anything with Service Canada on individuals' exactly. behalf. But the member could and should at least put their shoulder to the wheel to see what they can do for you. Yeah, because there's many people out there like me. I'm not the only one being frustrated right now. <laughs> 100%. Right? So yeah. it's crazy. So I'm not sure what the federal government is doing, but they said they're understaffed. That's their excuse all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's fine and dandy, but that doesn't put any money in your bank account. That's what I keep telling them. But anyway, don't go in the work if their hands are tied. It's got to go to a supervisor. So anyway, I thought I'd run that by you. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the okay. show. Call her office right. now. Okay, I will do that. Thank hey, you. Okay, Trudy. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line four. Keith, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, I'm just wondering, uh, I'm wondering what the government is doing with all their money. Because we was there the other day to give out so much money for something. I don't know what it was. I can't get, I can't get put my finger on it. And here, here's the poor woman there now waiting to get around the block. I'm not going to win that because I don't want the lease. But I can't understand. We're the wheelchair caravan to for Grand Falls. Okay. If I had, if I had this buddy, this episode of the 20th of April, and I mean the summer, just the summer, now the July month. And once July month is gone, the best of the summer is gone. Now I can't understand why somebody don't get off their ass and get something done with this wheelchair van as soon as possible. Excuse the language. Well, okay. I, so, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure what money you were talking about that was handed out, but of course, a wheelchair accessible van for uh, your community, I guess in Grand Falls, Windsor, yeah, that would be. Right. solely involved, maybe there'd be some potential partnership with the province, but that would basically boil down to the municipality, whether or not they're going to be interested in providing it. Now, they might yeah. indeed find a partner in the provincial government for this type of transportation service, but yeah, it'll kind of boil back to the, the council to at least begin the conversation and well, to Patty, drive that bus. Well, Patty, I want to see that wheelchair van come as soon as possible because there's a lot of people out in Grand Falls right now that got no way to get anywhere. They got they got no wheelchair they got no transportation for a wheelchair whatsoever. And they I keep on they're going to do something as soon as possible. Soon as possible. When as soon as possible going to come because the summer's soon be gone. Well not yet, but I mean it won't be long past and I want to get out somewhere. And uh, now if I want to go to the bank I gotta get something to go. And I was never used to doing this before. And I can get in somebody's car and and I mean, is that a problem? Oh, yeah, but that's, now I don't want to go with them anymore. You know, that's that's uh, that's understandable. And I can't understand why there's not something done about this. And I'm like Mary. I'm starting, like Mary, to call in yesterday, our friend Mary. I, I'm getting frustrated, too, because I want, I want to get from point A to point B. I can't even get to church on Sunday nights, and that's the place I always went. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm getting I don't mean to get rude or to get uh, forced, but I mean I'm I'm getting I'm getting poisoned with this, and it's time now for somebody to open their eyes and and get something done as soon as possible, please. And you're not being rude. You're not being obnoxious at all. You're just speaking your mind. Sounds fine to me. Yeah, but that's but that's uh, you know, 
But I don't mean, no, I want to get this done, Betty. Because my mom is getting on in years, and she can't take my chair and put it in the back of her car and bring me out to the mall or bring me. I want to go on my own steam, like I've always done. And I don't think I should have to be waiting around like this ever since the 20th of April, waiting to get both doors, I guarantee you. And that's not my, that's not my, I want to go, I'm, I'm a single man, and I'm looking for a friend, and I don't care who knows it, and I want, and I want to be able to go where she goes, and for she to go where I go. So now that's it, that's, and I want to see this done as soon as possible. I'm getting poisoned with it, I've been at it every since the 20th of April, and I got, and it don't seem like they're getting anything done. They always say, oh, we're doing something. We're doing something later, later. How much, how much more have we got to do? How much more have they got to do before they get, get this in? And if they got, I'm going to tell you something else they could do, too, uh, before I go. Uh, what they should do is have a telethon on the radio and ask the people uh, to give a little bit of money towards this man. So if they, they, so that's what you what what you want. You've seen I've seen it all done before. I've seen Linda Swain come out in Grand Falls when she was on and George McLaren the same way. And they raised all kinds of money. And I think we gotta go back to it in order to get what we want from point A to point B. Understood. I'm glad you made time for the show, Keith. Keep up the good Thank fight. You for- Thank you very much, and God bless. Take care. Thank you, Keith. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, line one. Bill, you're on the air. Hi, Bill. Hi, hi. How are you, Eddie? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Good. I was calling you last week about our, my sewer problem there in Kilbride. Oh, yes. With eight on our feet, are going to try to do it? Yep. And I was under the impression that you were going to check into it, see if for all of St. John's and that? The disparity in fee? The only thing I was told is that there's no different fee depending on where you are in the city. When I followed up and said, well, how come people are reporting that it is the case? And I haven't heard back, but I'll do it again today. I've got a, I've got such a long list of follow-ups that it's hard to keep I them all straight. Understand, yeah. Let me, I appreciate it if you would, buddy. I really would. Sure. And, you know, uh, you should do me a favor on this one as well. While I do my follow-up, give Carl Ridgely's uh, office uh, a call and see if he can help clear it up for oh, you as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that part. Say that again. I said we were actually talking to Carol Rich of uh, Carol Richards, Richie, whatever. Ridgely, yeah. Uh, he come back and said the Ridgely. Uh, he told me that uh, the city said that it's eight hundred dollars, and that's the best that he can do about it. Okay, I'll give it one more crack as well. I don't, I don't know. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate it. No problem, Bill. All the best. Take Bye-bye. care. Yeah, we, make no mistake, we try to do the follow-ups as best we can. The list is extremely long. So uh, do me a favor. If uh, I said I'd follow up on something and you haven't heard back from me or we haven't talked about it on the show with some updated information, don't hesitate. 
send me the resend that email or whatever it's going to take because if we can get some additional information for you on whatever we're talking about if it's possible we'll do what we can uh let's go how are we doing on the telephone there dave let's take a break for the newscast when we come back you know the deal we're speaking with you Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Uh, let's go line number two. Good morning, Anne. You're on the air. Um, hi, Patty. Um, I hope the connection stays good. I'm traveling Bonavis in the area, so uh, uh, reception's not that great. But I'm just wondering if you can clarify again. I think last week you had said uh, regards to the food fishery regulation if you had yeah, the connection is terrible, Anne, but I'll go ahead and speak to you. I know what you're getting at. So the recommendation has always been 15 per boat, right? Five per person, 15 per boat. But DFO, through an email that was forwarded to me, has pretty much said, if you have, what's going on here? If you have uh, more than three people in the boat and there's active fishers, so I, what I think that probably means is that a toddler doesn't qualify as a fisher for going out to jig a cod, they say that you will not be charged if you exceed the boat limit of 15 fish as long as each person has only their daily catch limit of five fish yes that's correct okay so four people 20 fish five 25 okay that's perfect because people are still confused with that and when you mention it to someone they're like no no it's still only 15 so well, and, and th- I wouldn't be saying this unless I had something to back it up because that is a direct quote from an email from DFO. Now, of course, we need and want people to participate responsibly. But if I, if me and three buddies go out in the boat, we can indeed take our five each. Perfect. Okay, no, that's, I just wanted to get that clarified again before it starts. Nope. Uh, on the- no problem, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, because it's you know, every year it's reported the exact same way, isn't it? Five per person, 15 per per boat. Uh, that's your daily limit. So there's always going to be people who will go out repeatedly throughout the, the entirety of the day and for the 39 days that it's open and active. But again, a bit of responsibility goes a long way, but that's the information we have directly from DFO. Let's go to line number four. Earl, you're on the air. Uh, hi, uh, Patty. Hi, yeah. Uh, this... Uh money that the seniors are scheduled to get now on July the 5th. What is the age for for that? Um, it's uh, 65 and older. 65 and older. Yeah. Oh. You must be 64, pardon me. You must be 64 years of age or over by the 31st of December of each taxation year. Okay. So if you're so. 64 by the 31st, you qualify for, if indeed, you meet the other eligibility requirement, which is based on the net family income, it's up Wait. to $29,402. Yeah. Okay. Well, that doesn't include me, but I have a friend who, who is not in that age right now, but will be in January. So would he be able to go on that in January or is this just this one-time shot deal? that cuts off on the 5th of July, say, this year. So he doesn't qualify because, how old is this person? This person is uh, 64. Okay, so if they're 64 or older by the 31st of the taxation year, so if he's 64 this year, he'll qualify uh, on the 5th for the 10% increase. 
Yeah, well, he won't be sixty. He won't be sixty-four until oh the fifteenth, say January. Oh, I see. Pardon me. Next year. So he'll qualify next year. He'll qualify next year. So it's not. It's not just a one-shot deal. According as people come of age, they'll be added onto that uh, list. Yep. The ten uh, percent is uh, an annual increase at this point. Well, it's a ten percent increase in full, but it's not yes. just for this one year. No. Okay. Well, that's that's what I that's what I wanted to know. My friend was saying that it's only if you don't qualify this year, you won't get it. That's not my understanding. I don't see it written like that anywhere. It's just I have some of that information pretty close by. Let me holler it out. Oh, da 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 da. Seniors seniors benefit. Yeah, it, it doesn't say that it's just for this one year alone. No. No, I'm looking right at it. Okay, well, hopefully that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, and there actually, there's people out there that are proponents of the increases being indexed to inflation. So, yeah. you know, the the maximum amount you're allowed to receive is $1,444. Mm-hmm. So I don't read it as anything but, because I mean, it, it's quite bold when it says, in order to qualify for this benefit, you have to be 64 years of age or older by December 31st of the taxation year. So that doesn't read to me like a one-timer. No, it doesn't. No, I just thought it was a one-timer for this year, <laughs> and that people who approach that age say this next year, and the next after the next taxation year would not be eligible. <laughs> yeah, and like even in the old age security increase, that is a uh, that's a perpetual issue. That's going to be not one year at all. That's a permanent no. increase in the ten percent. I, I, I realize that. That's why. I was th- so anyway, that was his understanding. But I said I don't think that's. I think it's like what. You you're telling me, and uh, that it would he would be eligible next year. So he knows he knows he's not eligible this year. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm wrong, I will get the clarification. But it reads like this is permanent. Yes. There's no mention of it. This is the one year. If you're lucky enough to qualify this year, great. If not, too bad about you. So no. if I'm wrong, I will get the updated info. But that's my understanding. That's how it reads to me. Okay, thank you very much, sir. You have a great day. You too, Earl. All the best. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Let's see what Dave has to say on one. Dave, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, uh, uh, for that 10% on your uh, supplement money, right? If you're on income supplement or seniors benefit, yeah. Yeah, so what do you do? Had your OAS and your supplement money together and whatever difference is to bring it up to $1,444? No, two separate issues. So, say, if I get six, say, $700 a month supplement money. Yeah. Uh, what would it be, go, what would it go up to then? What is it, 10% out of the 700? It's a 10%, yeah, because it's all based on your net family income, yeah, right? Well, so, yeah, well, that, well, that be, would be $70. Yep. Okay, sir, thank you very much. No problem, Dave. All the best. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, like, no one has ever told me that there is any just one-time only increase here. I know with absolute certainty that the old age security 10% increase on top of the one-time, I think it was $500 check, that the folks who qualify over the age of 75, of course, is important to add. Uh, that's in perpetuity, as far as it's, uh, the federal government is telling us at this moment in time. But anyway, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to two. Neil, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Great. How about you? Oh, not bad. Uh, been biting my tongue on this one for a couple of weeks, but I decided to uh, change it up a little. Patty, I was driving down the Marchant about a week and a half ago on my fairly large motorcycle, yep. uh, doing the speed limit, and I was passed on the inside by one of those bicycles with the noisy gas engines. 
Uh, got hung up in traffic a bit, and when it didn't suit the gentleman on the bicycle, at that point he decided to go up over the curb, across the crosswalk, back down the other side, and carry on about his business. Today I'm on the south side road, stopped at a red light signal for a construction zone, and another gas-powered bicycle decides that he didn't want to wait either, <clears throat> so he decides to proceed on through the red light and carry on about his business. So I'm just a little bit curious that uh, I'm paying my registration and my insurance and I've got my bike uh, inspected and I have all the safety equipment that I need and I'm lights and, and mirrors and all that good stuff. And these guys have nothing, not even a helmet, but it seems that they can go off and do what they want. And it seems that the authorities are oblivious to all this. Because that's the way that the current rules are written in the Highway Traffic Act, and it shouldn't be that way. I agree with you. If I have a powered vehicle, I should be, you know, following abiding by the rules for other powered vehicles, regardless if it's a bicycle or a scooter or what have you, because the rules are still clear. Even if I am pedaling power my bicycle, I still have to play by the rules that are established, and I can't be blasted through the red lights or anything of the sort. I'm not supposed to just hop up on the curbs either. So with the gas-powered ones, I think it brings upon... different set of circumstances so i get it maybe there should indeed be the same type of rules available for those bikes including insurance including a mandatory helmet absolutely patty if i'm doing 50 and he's passing me on the inside doing more than 50 you know he can do an awful lot of damage to a poor pedestrian or even to himself if he has an accident and then there's a certain amount of liability attached to all of that and i, I think it's time for some change here uh you know we often hear the, and see the signs pipe down and i agree with that you know we I'm, I'm not a fan of noisy motorcycles i don't believe that loud pipes save lives my motorcycle is is a street legal from the manufacturer and it's quiet but these little gas engines are quite noisy and they're a nuisance yeah <laughs> they certainly can be yeah absolutely yeah. right just wanted to get that off my chest and i'm wondering if there anybody else out there like-minded but i think it's time for a crackdown appreciate this thanks for the call neil thanks buddy take care you too bye-bye all right, there you go. Yeah, I mean, some of the, like, going 50, regardless of how you got to that speed, I mean, if it's mandated to have to wear a, a helmet while you're riding your bicycle, you would imagine it also should be mandated to wear a helmet if you're being powered by a gas motor or whatever on your bicycle. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the Deputy Mayor of the town of Chance Cove. That's Deputy Mayor Mel Brace. Good morning, Deputy Mayor. You're on the air. Yes, hi, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. First time caller. Uh, just want to uh, acknowledge uh, Sarah Thorne. Uh, very proud of her here, Nicole, everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, says a lot about uh, the good support system that she has where folks, uh, Ross and Trudy uh, Thorne, you know, uh, can't say enough about her. You know, let's give people and, sure. You know, just let's give people some information about Sarah, because you and I know what's uh, going on here, but maybe not everybody does. Sarah Thorne, this past weekend out at the Eastbound Park in Avondale, she's 18 years old, became the youngest woman to ever drive in a NASCAR Pinty Series race. That's correct. Yes, and, you know, as she's been uh, she's been doing it for a while now, and uh, she's in a different series uh, car races there. And, did really well, and uh, my understanding is uh, she beat all the guys there, uh, I'm not sure, about a couple of weeks ago, uh, came in first. So, you know, can't say enough about her, and, uh, you know, we're very proud of her here in the cold. 
Yeah, like you would. I mean, at 18 years of age, that's a pretty demanding series. I don't know if people have ever watched any of the Pinty series. I have. And, you know, she rented this particular Dodge race car from DJ Kennington, who is one of the legends of this particular series. Apparently, she's been invited to Ottawa or somewhere in Ontario, pardon me, to test out a car. She admits it might not be in her price range, but she's going to pursue the career anyway. Good for her. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, Deputy Mayor Brace, you're breaking up. Go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Deputy Mayor. The connection's terrible. I can't hear what you're saying. Let's try to get him back on. The side, I'm parked on the side of the road here now, and uh, lots of traffic. Okay, that's a little bit better. So you were saying, in an effort to continue supporting her, what are you suggesting we do? Uh, maybe we could uh, do fundraising or something like that to help her out and to achieve her goal. Absolutely. Are you going to organize anything formally? Uh, probably. I'm going to talk to her folks, and uh, maybe we'll do something there in the cold for her, you know? Well, if you uh, do... Maybe, you know... Pardon me? I was going to say, if you do, let us know what's happening so we can help support it. Absolutely. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. Enjoy your show. Very well. Thanks for the call this morning, sir. All the best, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. As Deputy Mayor Mel Brace out in the town of Chance Cove. Very quickly before we take uh, one more caller. So this particular listener called DFO about the recreational food fishery and boat limit or what have you. And, of course, and I've tried to add this to the conversation, you know, to be responsible when you go out and fish. The response she got is... You won't be charged, but they are discouraging it. So, you know, I guess there's a way. If you're going to have it as part of the legislation, then make it definitive. So the email is clear. You will not be charged, but they, what they say, and I read it verbatim, is if it is becomes an all-too-common practice, then they will indeed make adjustments too, maybe even close the fishery, which I've mentioned many times. So, yes, you won't be charged, but they are actively discouraging people from taking any more than uh, 15 per boat per day. Let's go ahead and keep going here to line number one. Good morning, Ty. You're on the air. Hello, my name is uh, Ty Stack, and I'm calling in, Patty, because I have a debate for you to settle. Uh-oh. Myself and some co-workers, we go and essentially move large crates of rock around store shelves, and uh, essentially it's just for mining companies who want to check out different mineral contents and so on. Anyway, when we move these boxes, these tend to be 40 or 50 pounds, give or take. But every now and again, we'll have a mineral company who wants to come in and look at a core. They'll split it down the middle, and that box normally will be half the weight. And we call that a bonus box. So we came across a bonus box today that is currently under question. The idea is that because a bonus box has half of the weight distributed evenly across the whole thing, this one was two full cores of rock, not split down the middle, but only on the left side. And on the right side, we had two empty rows. Now, Patty, would you consider that to be a bonus box? Um, all the weight on one side versus all of the versus the whole weight evenly distributed. Would you consider that a bonus? Or would you consider that one that it strained one, one arm more than the other? What I would consider it is I would tip it up on the side with all the weight and carry it from there and, and deem it a bonus box. Oh, very good. Very good. 
All right. Well, thanks, Fatty. I appreciate it. No problem. All the best. All right. I, We're all big fans. Oh, sugar. Uh, sorry, Ty. I didn't mean to. I, I thought you had said your goodbyes. I, I do appreciate the time. I think he was going to go out to say that they enjoyed the show, and so I appreciate that. Dave, uh, Dave, will you call back Ty for me and tell him I apologize for the quick click? Yeah, that was unfortunate. Okay, so good show. And, yes, one more time. If you bring, if there's four of you in the boat and you bring in 20, you will not be charged. But if it becomes an all too common practice, people may indeed see a change to the fishery and even the potential closure, which again, we have read verbatim from the email. And so when people are asking me to share it, I don't just cherry pick what part of the email I share. I share the entire thing so they can see exactly what was said and judge themselves accordingly. All right, let's have another check in. Uh, is that tie back on the phone there, Dave? Okay, I apologize for the quick click there. Sometimes I get a little bit carried away. We're on Twitter. We're a VOSIM open line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Raphael says, an alternative take on the powered bicycles. These are people who don't have the means to afford cars, motorcycles, insurance, registration, maybe, and they're just trying to get around in a poorly designed city. Yes, they should follow the traffic rules, but he disagrees on a crackdown. Yeah, it might be an affordability issue. Sure, fair enough. I think the most important part there is following the traffic rules you know and i would suggest and i'm not your mom but maybe if you're on one of these bikes a helmet is probably a very good idea all right so there's the twitter update our email address of course is openline at vocm.com and it's peppered here today i can tell you that much all right good show today big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk again in the morning bye bye